everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Notes in your weekly bulletin. I encourage you to take those out. They're going to aid us this morning as we walk through uh, a large portion of Scripture together uh, as we navigate through two verses of First Peter chapter 1. And... Uh, just coming out of the book of Galatians, uh, the tone in First Peter is going to be much, much different, as you're going to see, uh, than it was in Galatians, where Paul was out to um, challenge the, the Judaizers and their misrepresenting the scriptures, misrepresenting what, it, what the requirements were for salvation. And so Paul gives no greeting, immediately jumps in and begins to uh, set forth his case, and yet... You see with Peter as he's writing to uh, even the churches in Galatia. The, uh, there in Galatia, as you see. So we're, we're not that same uh, group of individuals are being encouraged and challenged in this letter as well, in this epistle. But it's not from Paul. It's from Peter, one of the twelve. And his goal is to uh, provide not uh, clarification of the gospel, but encouragement with the gospel. And it finds a much different uh, setting and scenario here that we want to be able to look through. And he's still going to take time to walk through the, uh, a very prominent gospel passage, uh, as we're even going to see today, and, and walk through some very weighty statements that, man, you can blow through with this greeting and not really understand what's being said and why it's being said and why it's important for us to understand why it's being said. And so today, we're just, hopefully, just want to take just a moment, set up the passage, uh, set up the letter that we're going to be walking through. And then over the next Three weeks, which will take us through Easter, are just going to be navigating through chapter uh, 1, verses 3 through 12. And so um, uh, we're going to try to walk through salvation and its hope for us, salvation and its uh, joy for us, uh, and then salvation and its confidence that it provides us over the next three weeks. And so that's where our goal and our theme is going to be just to go through. Then we'll probably pick up speed a little bit, uh, and not, otherwise we'll never finish the book of First Peter. But our goal is to... Uh, know what it is that we're studying and then apply the things that we're studying to us. And so um, let's dive right into the, the context of our, our, our notes this morning that is going to help us. And when we begin to think about these letters, uh, what I don't want us to do when we study the Bible is to forget who is writing, to whom it is written, uh, and then what's the purpose behind that. And so many, many times we want to come in and we want to extrapolate for ourselves, well, what does it benefit me? How does it help me? And that's at some point, that's, that's a right under, understanding, that's a right thing to do. But if we start there from the very beginning and not understand um, what it is that we've been given to us, what is it that this Bible is? And this Bible is again given to us so that we know God, not that God knows us, right? Sometimes we read it so much, as, what do I need to do about my life, what about this, my circumstances, and we begin to forget this is the means by which God has told us who he is. And how he interacts with us and how we come to him and how he comes after us. And so before we drive too much that we want all application and we want to just apply it to our lives, we will apply the scriptures wrong if we start there too quickly. We first have to say, well, who this letter is written to us um, indirectly 
But this letter was first written directly from an author by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to a recipient. And then what are the principles that are there? And then the principles that can be derived out of that circumstance then can be applied to us. But if we're not careful, we hijack the passage, we make it about us. And then many, many times, even in our scripture reading, it becomes self-centered and self-serving rather than worshipful and a desire to be able to honor and glorify God. And so one of the first things you want to be able to do every time you come to scriptures to say is, what does it say about who God is? What does it say about his character? What does it say about who he's writing to? And what does it say about their character? What is their need, which is him? That's why God's writing these things through these authors. And then how then can we apply this to our life, right? So I just wanted to walk through that. And so with that, let's do this so that we don't miss as we're walking through this letter to whom it's written, has been written, why it's been written, and then from that be able to pull the application, which hopefully we'll do this morning. So first of all, let's talk about who's the writer, who's the author of this passage. And so the author, as you see in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there's not much debate about whether or not this is actually the case, right? There was this um, other author that says there's a little bit of discussion, but mostly all believe from throughout church history that uh, one of the 12, uh, 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 Peter, and is at the head of all the lists as you look through the New Testament of the 12 that are listed. Uh, Peter's at the head. He's the spokesman for the 12. And so the author is the apostle Peter, and it's important to be able to see, see that and so uh, who he is. And so Peter uh, his name has been given to us, uh, and as far as in the Greek translation, that tells us who his name is. Petros, it's a rock. And so, but it wasn't what he was always called. Remember, his, his, name, was, uh, his name was Simon Barjona, right? Or Simon, the son of Jonah. Uh, and so that's, that's who uh, this person is, is uh, or also known as Cephas. Um, and so this, uh, and, uh, I believe that's the Aramaic. And so in that you're, you're seeing that this is the instructions of who we're looking to, who is it that this, this guy is. And so if you remember how he was found, he was a fisherman and pretty lucrative, uh, fisherman at, the, at the, that particular time. And so he was minding his own business until, uh, the word comes that, um, Jesus who can tell us all things, this Jesus who may be the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world calls him and, um, and, uh, his brother Andrew uh, encourages him to come check this guy out. Come see if this guy isn't the Messiah. And what happens is he drops his nets and he goes and begins to follow Jesus and uh, begins to just learn and listen. And then eventually you'll see that Jesus then calls him to himself and names him as one of the twelve as he begins to follow him. And so in that being named by Jesus, being called by Jesus, you see then this author is not only Peter, but he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle. He's a messenger. He's a sent one. And so he's on mission because God is calling him to be on mission. God is calling him for a specific purpose. And so where primarily his, his ministry was to the Jews, um, uh, whereas Paul's primary ministry was to the Gentiles, you see this interaction. You remember you even see where Peter had come to the, the area of Galatia at the time where uh, Paul was there, and remember Paul had to confront him and how he was treating, interacting with the Jews and the Gentiles at this particular time, how he was ministering to the Gentiles and the Judaizers show up, and he kind of begins to change the way he's doing things, and Paul needs to correct that and begins to instruct him in a better way of doing it. But his ministry primarily to the Gentiles, to the Jews, I'm sorry, um, and ministering there, but yet at the same time, who was one of the first ones to be able to defend and be able to take the gospel to the 
Gentiles, if it was not Peter, was it not? So you remember he was on Simon the Tanner's house, and then Cornelius had sent um, a God-fearing non-Jew, uh, had, had sent uh, instruction for Peter to come to him, and that's where he received the vision about eating the, the unclean animals. And, uh, and he says, I can't do that to, to God. And, and uh, God says, what I've deemed clean, uh, you shall no wise, uh, no, in no manner reject. You should be able to receive. And then right after that vision, the messenger from Cornelius is there at the house of Simon the Tanner. And then those Gentiles eat with them. And they leave the next day to go and see that the Holy Spirit, through the gospel proclamation, is granted as well to the, to the uh, Gentiles. And so um, this apostle... Now, I want to be careful here as we're just thinking through things. By no means when we communicate he's an apostle that he becomes the um, um, head of all church, of the entire universal church. And so some would teach that, and that's not what is being taught here. There were other apostles, and this is why the whole debate from the previous conversation with uh, Galatians where Paul's establishing his apostleship that he was also a messenger or sent one by, by, by Jesus Christ. It was important here. And so we want to be able to see first who's the author. He's Peter. He was uh, uh, a Jew that was, uh, was longing for the Messiah, but was, was not serving the Lord in a, an official capacity. He was clearly not a, a part of the temple or a priest, and yet was then called by God to be on mission to establish God's new kingdom uh, through regeneration. And so uh, here it is, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so that's the author. Let's still get the recipients uh, also seen in verse 1 and verse 2. The recipients. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. To those who are the elect exiles. And so what, is, what does that mean? Well, we, we're in an election season now. And so what does it mean that someone is elected? Well, you go to the... the, to the, the the um, ballots and the voting area, the voting precinct, and you you cast your vote. Well, what is your vote? Many times we are these words we we know we know what they mean. But we don't really apply them, and so you're choosing a candidate. And so I'm, I'm I I want to see this particular candidate elected or chosen. And so as a result of that, I'm choosing him. I want this person. I'm choosing her. I want this female to lead or to learn, to rule over this particular area, to be a representative, uh, what, what have you. And so they're, you're choosing an individual. And this is exactly what the context is saying here. To those who are elect or chosen by God. That's in your notes. So the recipients first are chosen by God. Now, what does that mean? And that's a scary thing for us to begin to think through because... Um, we hear crazy things on, on both sides, and we hear people preach. And so I, I don't like titles. I don't like labels uh, many times, not because I think there's anything wrong with them. Here's what I don't like about them is that many times you can cre- preach the Bible clearly, and the moment you name a label, somebody's been told something about that particular label, and all of a sudden it strikes fear in somebody's heart and mind. Well, I just think let's let the Scripture teach what the Scripture teaches and understand why the Scripture is teaching what it's teaching. And so as we begin to unpack that, and we're, we're free of those labels or at least a false understanding of those labels. And so what does it mean to be chosen by God? Well, simply in this passage, he's going to unpack a little bit about this. And so first we'd say they are people, right? So these are individuals. These are, are persons uh, that, have, that are dispersed in a variety of area in Pontus and in Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. And it's amazing when you begin to think about this. Some of these were named um, as you begin to look through the list in Acts chapter 2. So they, they are Pentecost. 
Some of these people were here when they began to preach in their languages. Listen to what it says here. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read it aloud to you. But Acts chapter 2 and verse 8 says, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea uh, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. And so here you begin to see the meaning of this Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. These same locations that were mentioned there were actually there where some of those were Jews that were returning um, uh, that had been dispersed initially um, uh, through the... the um, uh, Babylonian deportation that were now had, had landed in a variety of different areas and now are coming back for Pentecost. And so you begin to see those. But I need not just to think that this dispersion is speaking only of Jews. This isn't the letter written to them. This would be, these churches would primarily be churches that were filled of Gentiles and not Jews. And so these were people of a variety of different lands that uh, some of these we don't know how the gospel was taken to them. And can I say... Uh, for that lack of understanding to God be the glory. You begin to think about how the gospel has gotten to us today. It's, it's not the twelve, primarily. You see in Acts chapter 8, some unnamed converts are taking the gospel to Judea and Samaria. Unnamed converts are taking the gospel to... Um, if you continue on throughout the, the letter of the, or the uh, account of the New Testament as it's shown forth in the book of Acts and where the gospel goes to Antioch and yet there were unnamed individuals who were taking this gospel. And so uh, you may look at your life, you may begin to think about your life that, man, I may not be making a huge difference, but the gospel is spreading forth through our witness. And so that's why we need to make sure that we understand the gospel, understand it clearly, and can communicate the gospel, make sure the people we're communicating the gospel to have a clear understanding of what the gospel is. And just like um, Galatians, where there's provide clarity to what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, so that it can provide confidence. And then from a clarity of the gospel, the confidence we can have in clarity of the gospel, then you're able to provide encouragement like Peter's trying to do to those who are dispersed this this church who is dispersed in a a variety of different lands and regions to god be the glory that the the gospel has been permeating throughout the lands and it's going to places that hasn't hasn't the the gospel has not reached yet and it's moving from there and it's being reached by not just the 12 but disciple after disciple after disciple and what that means is that the gospel is taking root in the hearts of man and the disciples are making disciples and and those disciples are making disciples and those disciples are making disciples and so these are people and they're Chosen by God. And so what does that mean? Well, uh, clearly, I think the passage, we want to stay in the passage. We don't have to even move outside of that. Continue to read through verse 2. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, uh, this is going to then um, amplify, right, the term elect, right? So this, oh, so how are they elected? And it says, well, they're elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, what does it mean for knowledge. Well, if you, it's, it's a term that speaks of to know and to, of intimacy. If you think about even in the book of Genesis, what it speaks of, what it means to know someone, right? And it would mean that um, they, there was sin had taken place before Adam knew his wife and spoke of an intimacy, a knowledge that's, that's intimate in that sense. And, it, and so then so-and-so knew his wife and they bore a child. And so so it speaks of an uh, intimate knowledge of one another beforehand. 
right? So for, before, an intimate knowledge of. And so when you begin to put those together, what does this mean? Is that God knew who he was going to choose before we were ever born. Now, if that seems like a foreign concept to you, hold your place there and join me in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read a relatively lengthy passage, but it all ties together, and it ties together in light of um, the gospel as it would come to us and why we are blessed and how we are blessed. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's trying to communicate to them how blessed they are in Christ. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. If you're there, say amen. All right, pretty good. You guys are listening and responding, which is even better. All right. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us, there it is, in him before the foundation of the world. Now, before the world was ever created, he's chosen us. Right? That, so why, is, why has he done that? That we should be holy and blame us before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. And in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there it is again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, or this foreknowledge, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, so there's, there's our response, Right? So it does require response. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So before the foundation of the world, he had predestined, and so says it a couple of times, for us to be chosen, to be elected in him. Now, why is that important? Well, many times you begin to think through the, the reality of people with gaining their salvation, losing their salvation, all this process where the reality is that God knows who are his. This has been the reality beforehand. And so many times you could say, well then, but I've heard it, Pastor, that it could be that God looks through the corridor of time and God knows who's going to choose, who we're going to choose him. And then in that, now that he knows who's going to choose him, he chooses them and that's his foreknowledge, right? That it's a, a choice of choosing who we're going to choose, Right? And could that be what that particularly means? Well, if we just only look at Scripture to Scripture, let Scripture apply itself, here would be a reality. Look at verse 20 of the same. Now, get back to 1 Peter. Look at verse 20 of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 20. It's talking about Jesus here. And we'll even uh, back up to verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, we look at that and we hold it true to what the passage is teaching. Ultimately, there's no question that Jesus was going to choose the right things, right? It wasn't that the foreknowledge means that there was a choice that Jesus made that could have been uncertain, 
that it wasn't going to do, but there was a choice that he made. That as we look at that and we look backward and go, okay, Jesus was going to choose God, and so therefore we can look at his choice and God chooses him. No, it doesn't make any sense. Jesus is God. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly why he came. That's why it says before the foundation of the world, there was a lamb who was slain, meaning it wasn't just that God knew he was going to choose, and so he chose Jesus. No, that wouldn't make any sense for the foreknowledge here. And so foreknown him means that there was, an, there was a knowledge this is going to take place, and so it is going to take place because why? God set it in motion. And then we even look at it other ways that the Bible say, well, then if we had that type of viewpoint of foreknowledge that God knew we were going to choose him, so he chose us in light of knowing that we were going to choose him. The problem with that is that the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, and it's referenced from a litany of Old Testament passages. In Romans chapter 3, it says that no one seeks God. The problem then with the foreknowledge that God chooses those who are going to choose him is that no man would choose him apart from God's help. Right? No one, there's no one who is good, no one who is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. Romans 3.11. And the problem is that we're putting the, the reality on the wrong person. We're putting the burden on people when the burden's upon God. And may I say, that's a great burden to be lifted. That I don't have to wait and, and try to overcome man. I just have to trust God who can overcome any one of us. And that's why when we go to India and we're, we're sharing with people, it can be completely hopeless if it's about my persuasive speech. And if I can talk somebody into something, let me tell you, there's somebody who's far more eloquent than me and that's far more deceptive and is going to try to allure them with things of the flesh. It can be much quicker to talk them out of that. But what I believe and what the, 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 the Scripture is teaching and what I, the Bible clearly sets forth is but when God does the work in somebody, there's no going back. He who began a good work in you will complete it today of Christ Jesus. Now that is, so therefore, we should all the more go out and share the gospel with everyone. Because why? We don't know who the elect are. But we know this. Wherever we go with the gospel, God's calling people out. And that's a great thing. And so the criticism then becomes out of fear to be able to go, if you teach this, though, people aren't going to be evangelistic. And to where I say to the contrary, I teach it because it's in the scripture. People aren't evangelistic because they're not obedient. But if it's in the scripture, I need to trust it. And so then why would then, if this is such a scary thing to teach, why is Peter opening up with it? His greeting is in, in, encouraging people with this. And I think there's going to be some encouragement I'll tell you about. I'll share my cards right up front. He's doing this because they're suffering. And I couldn't have said it. We didn't plan this, but I couldn't have set it up better. Um, as, you know, God's completely sovereign over that. To be able to say, why, why would that song, God is sovereign over us, Bring us encouragement for the same reason we begin to realize our salvation isn't of us. Because if it was of us, if I chose God and then I could reject God, then, then it's in my court. But ultimately, here's what the reality the Bible teaches. We always reject God until God transforms us. So then let's continue on. So we're chosen by God according to the plan of God the Father. So you see God the Father at work with foreknowledge. And then you're going to continue to see now we're chosen by God according to the plan of the God the Father, but of the work of God the Holy Spirit. The work of God, the Holy Spirit. Here's what it says there. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification or being made holy of the Spirit. Now, when God pursues us, right, as he has all throughout Scripture, when God pursues us, we're not found to be holy, are we? If you go all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 
Genesis chapter 2, they were without sin. But they weren't, um, they had the capacity to be able to sin, but they were without sin. Right? And so in this, they, they reject God. And so then what do they begin to do? They don't see God, do they? Right? It's looking to the corridors and the annals of time and says, oh, Adam and Eve are going to seek me. They do what all of us do. They do what John chapter 3 says we do. We don't want to come to Christ. Because why? We don't want our deeds that are done in darkness to be exposed. Right? That's what the scripture teaches. That's why they rejected the light and tried to kill Jesus and did indeed kill Jesus. But that was also according to the definite plan of God in order to be able to accomplish God's kingdom purpose and kingdom work. But ultimately, we, we want to hide. So they begin to sew, sew together fig leaves to cover their nakedness, to try to cover their shame, and they begin to hide from God. And so what does God do? God pursues them. Adam, where are you? Now listen, God didn't need to ask the question. He knew exactly where Adam was, did he not? Adam, where are you? So what was the, bur- the basis and the purpose of the question? The basis and purpose of the question was that Adam needed to know where Adam was. I created the world, bro. All the things that were here that I've created, all the animals that you named came from my hand, came from my word. And you think you're going to hide underneath a leaf? Hide in the bushes from me? And so the God's given us his word, the law, to show us where we are and who we are in light of who he is. It's for our benefit that this is here, that we, our evil deeds can be exposed, that we won't seek him. But then here's what the beauty is, is that then as he begins to reveal himself to us, and he, the Spirit then resides in us and he transforms us. All of a sudden, we understand where we are and then we immediately want to repent and believe. And so what is this sanctification of the Spirit? What's the work of God's grace in us? Right? So what's the work of the Spirit? It grants us faith, Ephesians chapter 2. Right? It grants us the faith to believe. It grants us the ability to repent. And we wouldn't repent apart from the Spirit's work within us. It grants regeneration, being made alive or being born again. Ephesians, if you want to just read through that, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 are marvelous to explain all of this. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 are unbelievable as it speaks to repentance and regeneration, being made alive as, as Ephesians 2 would help us to walk through. And so this work of the sanctification of the Spirit is uh, faith and repentance, regeneration, or being regeneration just a technical term. It means being born again. So John chapter 3 about being born again. And so what does that process look like? Ezekiel then is the, uh, is the Old Testament rendering of what uh, being uh, born again in John, John chapter 3 speaks of. It says you must be born of the Spirit and of water. And so where do you see Spirit and water? It's not baptism, right? It's not, uh, it's not this, it's, it's a kind of an idea that many would want to be able to teach that. So we're, if that's not the case, where do we find an Old Testament passage that would teach that? And you say, why, we, why do we need an Old Testament passage? Because when, John, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he says, how are you a teacher of the law and not know these things? This thing about the spirit and the water. So that should give us a clue, right? Because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And so if he's telling Nicodemus, how do you not know these things? And you're a teacher of the law. Where would then there be an insight where we could go look? Talk to me. The Old Testament, right? And so you go to Ezekiel chapter 36. It's a marvelous passage where it begins to speak to those who are in dispersion, right? Who had been dispersed and were in Babylon. And he begins to communicate to you, and I'm going to remove this uncleanness from you. I'm going to cleanse you with water, and I'm going to remove your idols. And I'm going to take out this heart of stone, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. The heart of stone just means it's dead. It won't respond to God. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. It doesn't mean uh, the flesh in a negative sense, like the flesh of we only reject God flesh, that the New Testament could use it. But it just means that like 
something that's pliable, something that moves. And so where there wouldn't respond, it was, was non-responsive to God. Now this new heart is going to be responsive to God. So I'm going to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my commandments. So we see it. Remove your uncleanness, your sin, my water. And I'm going to put my spirit. So there it is. Ezekiel chapter 36. What he was talking to Nicodemus. He says, I must be born again. It's by spirit and water. And so it's this work of regeneration, being born again, that the Spirit does in us as it takes the Word and brings the Word to life and transforms our dead hearts. And so faith, repentance, regeneration, and adoption are means by which God blesses us and and calls us to Himself. And so it's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. So we're chosen by God according to the plan of God the Father, by the work of God the Holy Spirit, and by the blood of God the Son. I'm going to skip a little section here. I'm going to come back to it. Uh, this for obedience to Jesus Christ, I'm going to, speak, uh, I'm going to skip, and I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. And for sprinkling with his blood. And once again, all of those are, are uh, identifying what it means to be an elect, right? To be chosen. So we're, the recipients are chosen by God according to the, the plan of God the Father. It's his foreknowledge. The work of sanctification by God the Holy Spirit and by the blood of God the Son. Now, he uses a, a very Jewish term there. For sprinkling with his blood. And what does that mean? Well, it's a variety of things that would be done. You would sprinkle blood for cleansing, right? And so you would be able to sprinkle blood upon the altar, sprinkle blood on a variety of the instruments that were being used in the context of the temple. You would sprinkle blood on uh, the priest for consecration and doesn't, uh, for them to be made clean before, before that. And if you remember in Deuteronomy, right toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the second law, Deuteronomy means a second rendering of the law. So the law had been given to the first generation and they rejected him, right? And so they, most of them died in the wilderness. And so then Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to the new generation that was going to be able to actually make it into the promised land. And at the very end of that, they began to consecrate. Uh, there was a consecration process. And so they were going to um, sprinkle or throw blood upon the people as a result of, of uh, solidifying that or to make them holy in a sense of that there was this uh, desire to move forward and we want to agree with this process. And so in this, this mindset, you're seeing that Jesus was the great fulfillment of the law and the sprinkling of blood that was able to consecrate that Jesus most fully consecrates us in him. And so the beautiful thing that is that as you begin to think about salvation, these who were chosen by God, were chosen by God for a purpose of salvation. How did God do it? It was a work of God, the father, his plan plan of God the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit, and it was all as a result of the blood of God the Son. That we look at the cross and its finished payment for sin and sinners for who would repent of their sins. And so how, why would they repent? Well, they hear the gospel. They're made alive by the, the, the Spirit taking the word, makes them alive. They repent of their sins, which we talked about, faith, repentance, regeneration, adoptions, the work of the Spirit based upon the the, the uh, fulfillment of the law by God the Son, and it was all a part of God's glorious plan uh, for knowledge of God from eternity past. And so you think, well, man, well, what about my response? That, uh, but the Bible says I should repent. Now I would say you, you should, and you will for those who have a new heart. That's the natural byproduct for those who were, were, hear the gospel and are were eternity past look back and realize they're chosen. Now, Rather this, we, we get it messed up and we begin to get confused in this process because then we start thinking of, well, I don't, well, what if God hasn't chosen me? 
right, can be the question. Or the odds a bad guy if that's the case. Well, here's the key. Even if your, your concept of foreknowledge, which I don't believe is a biblical concept of foreknowledge, but even if your concept of foreknowledge was God looks to the corridors of time. And in looking through the corridors of time, he sees those who are, going to, who are going to choose him and reject him. And so then he chooses them based upon their response in the future. Can I also tell you, it might make you feel better that they had a, they had a choice in a, in a real sense in that kind of way. But can I also challenge you with something? It doesn't get God off the hook for being a bad guy if your viewpoint of him is a bad guy at that point. Now, let me explain. If he still chose to create that creature, that human, and lied of the fact, they, even though he knew, down, looked at the quarter's time, they would continue to reject him, their end is still the same. They still end up in the same place. And so, so then the reality in that is that you're still in the same place where you think they have a choice or don't have a choice. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He knows all things. It didn't surprise him. The reality in this is, is that for us, it gives us an encouragement that, yes, we know the Bible's difficult. We know we don't always under, understand everything the Bible has to speak of. We know that God's ways are not our ways, and his ways are higher than ours. And so at the end, I don't know all this. I don't uh, attempt to have the mind of God, but here's what the Bible does teach. Is that everything that God does is good. He is not tempted by sin and does not tempt us to sin. His mercy is gracious and kind. His punishment is holy and just. He didn't desire to any. He desired to see the wicked perish. And he desired he didn't desire to any would perish, but all that would come to repentance. And so in this, here's here's what I want to be able to communicate. But the joy then comes in knowing that God, who should punish every human being, does not punish some. And for us, all the more to be encouraged that, yes, this world is going to reject this message. But we can go anywhere across this planet and preach this message, knowing that God's going to call out those whom he's been chosen in eternity past. And all the more why it gives me confidence to go, even though the numbers may not reflect that this is the most popular message of all time, but to be able to have confidence to know I can go preach this message and that God is going to be regenerating people. Because why? God had a plan set forth in eternity past that was accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ and his payment on the cross and is being fulfilled by the Spirit's work, sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so when I go and cast seeds, as Mark chapter 4 says, right? And I just cast seed wherever I want to go. And it says that then what, what happens to the farmer? It says he sleeps and he rises. And the seed takes root. He knows not how. Let me tell you what that means. You know what that, he knows not how, we you know what's happening there? It's the unknown doer. There's somebody working when I'm not working. I cast the seed, but that's not up to me then after that. Share it, share it right. Share the, have good seed, be a good sower. Sow it everywhere. Sow the right seed. And then guess what? The unknown doer takes that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that he's working in the life of people. And so these recipients are chosen by God according to the plan of God the Father, the work of God the Holy Spirit, and the blood of the God the Son. That's his atonement for us. So these recipients are chosen by God, and these recipients are strangers in this world. Strangers in this world. 
That's what it means there if you go back to our passage, verse 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, some would read that and they, they see the exiles of the dispersion. And immediately they want to say that that's the Jews that were being dispersed. And so they would look at this and they would say, well, then potentially this would be then uh, when Rome was destroyed in AD 70. And then they were dispersed out of that in this whole particular region. And through a variety of other. And so a couple of times it could be used speaking of uh, speaking of that, that it's, it's referring to the Jews being dispersed in the Babylonian era era. And I, I can potentially I can see that. But ultimately, a few things what we know about this passage is the destruction of the temple had not happened yet. So that couldn't be it. And number two, the primary audience that he's writing of these locations that he's speaking of isn't primary Jewish audiences. And so what is it that we should derive from this then? What's the reality for this is us to begin to realize that we, this, is, this is not our home. That's what he's saying. These, these ex, elect exiles in dispersion, and he begins to talk about the wide variety of places that they're located. Isn't that these were Jews that got displaced? No, because... This kingdom is now to come and see. It's a go and tell. They're trying to leave. That's what he said in Acts chapter 1. Right? You'll be my witness from Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. They want to leave now. Where it was, Come and see. Come here to worship. Come here to worship. Because why? God's presence was in the temple. God's holiness, his name was derived there to the temple. Now the message is, you are my temples. Now go and light the world. Go and be the salt of the earth. Now go and tell. Not, it's not a come and see. And that's why we, in our churches, we don't need to drive our churches to be a come and see mentality. We need to be instructing our churches what the New Testament teaches us. We're a go and tell. We establish everybody to come here to hear the gospel. You're, eventually, some point, you can't build a big enough building. You can't have enough services to be able to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. And you'll begin to collapse upon yourself. But if you begin to train what the Bible said, to go and tell, is endless the number of places you can reach. That's why... These guys go to India and go to Costa Rica and go to a variety of different locations. Why? And wherever I go, you're on a business trip and you go overseas, man, take the gospel with you. Be salt and light wherever you go. Why? Because they don't have to come here. I live in ball ground. You know how difficult it is to be able to encourage sometimes people from ball ground to come here? I was talking to people earlier this morning. I said, man, daylight savings and rain is like kryptonite to a Baptist. And we had them both this morning, right? So I was expecting a lot to be like five people here, Right? Daylight savings and rain this morning, right? But you know why? I'm not, I can't, it's harder to encourage people, even though you might live, I might live in ball ground 20 some odd minutes away from here. It's because it'd be foolish for me to think, well, you come here to hear the gospel. And it's really foolish since I'm the pastor, I should be able to one. If you're inviting people here for me to preach the gospel to them, I'm there so I could preach the gospel to them. So it wouldn't make sense. But even if it were you living there, the reality is it's smarter for us to share the gospel in the variety of venues that God has placed us in, right? And so that's the key for us to be able to think through this. And so when we go share that gospel in a variety of different locations, now all of a sudden they're not of this world. That's why Jesus said, be in this world, but not of this world. And so as we re- receive the gospel, all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I didn't know this, but I was elected. I was adopted. I didn't have a choice in this, right? Those who have adopted realize, man, what a beautiful picture of the gospel that is. But then once... You begin to realize, you look back on it and go, I didn't have anything to do with any of that. But I'm grateful to be a part of the family. And I want to encourage as many other people to be adopted. I want them to be a part of the family. So I'm going to go share it. I'm going to go encourage those guys. But then what do we realize? Our family is weird, right? Our family doesn't look like the world. The world systems. Because why? 
This place isn't our home. Oh, one day it will be when God makes it new and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth the way it should have been all along. But not right now. And so he just talks about elect exiles. He's talking about how they're different. They're not, um, they're not the same. Well, Pastor, how do you know that's what this, this means? Well, hang, the, hang out here. We'll still be in First Peter. Go to chapter 2 real quick. Might be just right on the other side of the page potentially for you. Look at chapter 2. How do you know they elect exiles? It's not just really what he's trying to get at. Well, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Ephesians, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 9 and we'll read uh, continually through this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you, speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so we know this isn't speaking of Jews as exiles because they were God's chosen people, right? It says you were not a people and now you were a people. You had not received mercy and now you have received mercy. Well, God's chosen people, the Jews had, were his people and had received mercy continually. So he's speaking primarily to a Gentile audience. And he's saying to them, but as a result of that, now that you've been called out of this world to live for this new kingdom, you're exiles in this world, right? So you're strangers in this world. And so then why are they so strange? You have to ask. Why is it that there makes you so weird? Makes it so unusual to this world that we would be called exiles. Well, that passage just read it to you that now we would give God glory and that we wouldn't live as this world lives. But go back to first Peter chapter one in the section that we're reading. Verses 1 and 2, and it's actually in verse 2. So we are elect exiles, right, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, and here it is, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. See, the beauty is that we're the recipients of this letter. We're chosen by God and strangers in this world. They're chosen by God. We talked about that, what that means, the plan of God, the work of the Spirit, and the, the blood of Christ. But now they're strangers in this world because why? They're obedient to their Lord and Savior, right? For obedience to Jesus Christ. God has enabled us now because the Spirit resides in us and he's given us the word of God and he's given everything that pertains to life and godliness that we would live differently in this world, that we could now be salt and light. We could carry out the deeds that God's called us to do, right? Which Ephesians 2 would say us to do. As it gives us all this instruction about who we are in Christ, then he says, and now as a result of that, you're God's workmanship. That you'd carry out good deeds that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this preparing beforehand is God's foreknowledge. And that he was going to redeem us. And as all that works has been put in by the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Working this process into us. Working this, this salvation into us. And he says now, and I'm doing it because I want you to live differently. I want you to be my people. That you would be my representation to the world. That God is alive. That you would be my hands and my feet. And that, yes, you would be strangers in this world. But yes, you would also be obedient to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? That's the key. That's who he's writing to. So the author, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, recipients are those chosen by God and are strangers in this world. And then what does he start off trying to communicate to them? His greeting. Look at the greeting. 
Also could be termed benediction or blessing. What is this desire he has for us? And it almost comes, comes across as a prayer as you read it. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That was a normative greeting as you look through the New Testament writings. Grace and peace. Number one, way to greet one another. We don't do it so much here, but that's a pretty normative greeting. So what is it, what's it communicating? Well, it was a prayer for God's best for them. It's a prayer for God's best. This greeting and the start of this letter is the first to remind them. Here's who I am, right? I, like you, were chosen by God, and he set me on mission. I'm an apostle. I didn't ask for this. God bestowed this upon me, right? But as a result of this, man, I want as many people to come to faith in Christ as possible. He's willing to endure great sufferings on behalf of Christ because God changed his heart. And remember, of all people to begin to realize this wasn't his plan, would be Peter's, right? All throughout the Gospels, he's constantly boasting in his flesh, boasting about what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. Hey, if anybody's going to deny you, it's not going to be me, right? Who's, who's, who's boasting like that? Talking about boasting in the flesh, we were, Tim taught us last week out of Galatians. It was Peter. And then, right, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. What happened? Exactly that, right? Tables begin to turn, circumstances begin to change, and all of a sudden Peter says, I'm going with the wind. Wind's blowing this way, I'm going with the wind blows. And he denies Jesus three times. But then after the resurrection, you see in G- Peter rejecting Jesus. Absolutely not. Why? Because God's work is in him. And so now he's trying to encourage these churches that are in a variety of different locations. that are living as exiles or strangers in this world. And he wants to encourage them. Don't forget God's plan and purpose. This, this plan began with God. And be encouraged by that. This doesn't nullify man's responsibility. But then when you begin to look at it and you begin to obey what the Bible tells you to obey. Every time we look back and go. Man, I made a choice to obey God, but what I begin to realize, it was not I who was working, but God was in me. Right? Puritans called that holy sweat or dependent work. I work, but then I look back and realize that everything that was done in obedience wasn't by my hand, but it was by God's spirit in and through me. Right? And that's the reality that we've been seeing this. And so what is this prayer for God's best? Two things. He's asking them for, uh, is it praying for them that they would have an abundance of the grace of God? Abundance of the grace of God. And that was exactly how we ended up. Galatians, was it not? As you look back at the very last verse in Galatians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Why, why did Paul end that letter to Galatians that way? Because it was grace that brought them to faith. And it will be grace that keeps them in the faith. It's grace that they needed unto salvation. And it's grace that they need unto sanctification and eventually unto glorification. Right? Grace throughout. That's why we can't boast of anything. God who was the one who was doing the work. And so he's praying. And may the grace of God be evidence in your life. And that's why if we see this in other people's life. How do we then encourage people? Just tag on for last week's lesson. How do we begin to encourage people without building them up? And one of the easiest ways to do that that gives God glory and yet still encourages the brother, sister in Christ that you're trying to encourage. Here's a simple way to do it. Man, I just want to praise God for the grace of God at work in your life. Does a person not feel encouraged when you tell them that? Man, they see. He's praising God on behalf of 
what's happening in the context of my life. But then it's not me who's getting the glory, right? I praised God the Father. I praised God for the grace of God. I see it work in your life. And then be able to tell them, man, I see this and see this and see this and see this. And those might be choices that they make. But then they, even that brother or sister in Christ would say, ah, it's not mine. If it were up to me, me living by the flesh, I wouldn't make those decisions. So if you see that brother, sister, to God be the glory. And so it encourages the brother or sister in Christ, but then it keeps them from puffing them up. Whereas if you just come up and say, that's the best sermon I ever heard, right? If you told that to me, I'd be like, you've not heard very many sermons, right? That's the first thing I would be able to communicate. But the ultimate in that is that, you know, the encouragement, then it, be, it becomes about that person, right? May you deliver it better than this person delivers it. Well, it doesn't matter. That's just your, what you say. Eight other people might say, that's the worst sermon I ever heard, right? It balances itself out. What, so how do we be able to communicate? Man, I praise God for the grace of God. I see it work in your life. And so he's praying that even more of that would be this abundance. Thankful for what he sees and he continues to see the grace of God exhibited. And if they're in suffering, they're suffering at this particular time, they need God's grace to endure suffering. And then the abundance of the peace of God. We were on our Wednesday night class talking about the peace of God. As we think through the peace of God, it, it's not simply just wishful thinking. As we begin to look at it and we begin to think about it. It's not just I, I desire for, for this or I desire for that. But it's something much more than that, that we, that's taking place in the context of, of God's peace for us. Listen to what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. Encouragement for us, instruction for us is that what, and what Peter is wanting this, this, uh, these individuals, these exiles, these strangers to know is that, yes, when you're enduring suffering, you're in the midst of the battle. Two things you need. You need God's grace and you need God's peace. God's grace is a reality that it's not up to me. I need God's help and then God's peace is I need him. Man, now may the Lord of peace himself. I need, I need Christ. And I think that's sometimes why we don't experience peace is that we just want the byproduct of Christ. We don't want Christ. Let me say that again. I think sometimes why we don't experience peace in our lives is that we don't really want Christ, the Lord of peace himself, who can grant us peace and can grant us peace in, at all times, in any circumstance. Think about that. In any circumstance, a person puts a gun to your head or a sharp knife to your neck and says, I'm about to kill you, and you can have the absolute peace of God. Because why? I can have May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. That's not true. Then we need to take it out of our Bibles and say, except for when it's a really intense circumstance. And then we, that's, that, that, I get it. Nope. Throughout history, we've been given story after story after story after martyr after martyr after martyr who's died for the faith. Even been burnt alive. And man, they're praising God because God gave them grace and peace at some of the most difficult of moments. That's why we begin to look back at this and go, this is why we need to understand who's at work. Is it me helping God out? 
joining his team or is God the one that radically changed me and my confidence isn't in me at all. My confidence is completely in him. So that when moments come where I know in my flesh I will reject him, I can stand firm because why? I want the Lord of peace himself. Not just the byproducts that he can give me. God, I really want peace right now because I'm really struggling. And God says, do you really want me? Because I'm the one who ordained that thorn in the flesh for you. Two years ago, this last April, right? God know it. He absolutely knew it. And God ordained that? Absolutely. Why? The Bible says this. I have numbered your days. We don't think deeply enough about these things in the past. That means in Stuart's days were numbered. His days were numbered. Your day is numbered. My day is numbered. And when I hit that number... There's nothing that can separate me from God. Nothing. Tribulation, persecution, all those great promises in Romans chapter 8, all of them are going to be accomplished in Christ Jesus on our behalf. And that day is numbered. It's already got it listed out. God knows when it's coming. And at that moment, he'll tell the angels, step away from him. Satan is going to destroy my body. And as a result of that, my spirit goes to heaven. But then let's take joy. There's one day where that body gets called up out of the ground and it will be a new body and it will join my spirit and I will be made new in Christ Jesus, fully new. And so be encouraged. This is, this is how Peter starts out a letter that's going to be one of much suffering as he begins to tell them, I know you feel like you're a crazy person in this world. That's because this world is not of me. I own it all. But right now, Satan has dominion. And he's on a short leash. He can't do anything apart from my by allowing him to do it. And so don't ever get to a fatalistic mindset. God's in control. But take courage, Christians. A genuine author, not Peter, has written a letter through the hands of Peter, not just simply to the recipients there who were chosen by God, who were strangers in this world, but to us who are chosen by God and, and strangers in this world. And God is telling us, be blessed. Be encouraged. May you have an abundance of grace and peace for everything you need in Christ Jesus for today and for this week. And so when it gets too difficult for you and you feel overwhelmed, realize the God of all mercy and the God of all comfort will comfort you with this comfort that eventually he wants you to be able to use to comfort others. And God, I just, since we began this way, we also encourage Bart at this moment. Brother, I know it hasn't been the most easy time for you, but here's what I know. You've used the comfort that you've received by the Holy Spirit to be a comfort to other people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.